0: Hey, you're listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We provide relevant resources to new and aspiring independent school leaders to help you grow, succeed at work, and have a positive impact on the lives of students.
1: I'm Michael. And I'm Matt. On this podcast, we have insightful conversations with leaders from across all areas of independent school education.
0: Independent schools are continually looking for innovative ways to make education more relevant and valuable to students. Some schools have decided to merge their English and history departments together to form a humanities department. The goal of a robust humanities curriculum is to break down the silos that separate the studies of history and English, and to give students a deeper understanding of the cultural reality that exists within each moment of history. We're very excited to have our good friend, Steve Nowak, on the show today. Steve has spent his entire career teaching and leading within independent schools. He has served at both day and boarding schools in a variety of positions, both academic and administrative. Currently, Steve is serving as the chair of the Humanities Department at Rabin gap School, an international boarding school nestled in the North Georgia mountains, where he has served for over a decade. Here is our conversation with Steve Nowak about building a humanities program. Hi, Steve.
1: Thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time.
2: Hey, Michael. I'm happy to meet with you.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, I'm excited to, to have you on the show and, um, and prior to calling you, uh, I shared with the audience a little bit about, about you and your work, but could you start by just talking a bit about your journey in education and where you are now?
2: Sure. I have been in independent schools my entire teaching career. I've taught at really small independent schools, I've taught at day schools, I've taught. Raven Gap is my first boarding school, but I've been at Raven Gap for 10 years, so I feel like I very much have a sense of boarding schools. I've had a lot of different responsibilities. I've been a teacher, I've been an administrator, I did some athletic administration. I have led a middle school and my current role at Raven Gap is being our humanities department chair.
1: Wonderful. And uh, it's that most recent work, the humanities department chair, that I'm really excited to talk with you about today. Um, And so, let's jump right into that. In the last few years, I know you've been leading an effort to transform the English department and history department uh, at your school into a humanities department, into one single department. I'm interested in just kind of exploring what that's been like for you. And so, I guess my first question is, how have you uh, and and your school in general conceptualized humanities and what does it mean to have a humanities department?
2: Sure. Wow. That's, there's a lot going on with that question. (laughs) I would say that for us, the way that we are trying to conceptualize humanities. So the first, we did a lot of research. We looked into other schools who did humanities-based work. We visited a number of places that do various varieties of types of humanities work. Because for us, I think the thing we were most passionate about when we conceptualized it was the idea of removing the silos of education, right? I mean, that's a, a hip idea. And so I think one of the things we really cared about was looking at English and history instead of as... Isolated subjects in school as a way of allowing students to cross over and realize that whether you're studying the literature of a time period or the history of a time period, that in a lot of ways you can't have one without the other. So instead of having classes where there might be an English class happening and they're reading X book and the history class is studying this, you know, chronological timeline, we wanted to sort of start to really push those two things together. And so what that meant for us was a lot of planning. So we, since I've taken over, we spent a tremendous amount of time building the freshman team to start. And then from there, we spent a lot of time building curriculum for 10th and 11th. And so then We started the rollout. And so I think for us, when we, that's the biggest thing for us, when we think about humanities work, it is the idea of combining. And truthfully, I think our long-term dream is making it even beyond English and history, but right, also looking at art and technology and music, right? Because a true blue humanities experience would be trying to understand culturally what's happening in any given moment in history. And so that's where our passions lie. And I think the other thing for us was because we really believe as a department that facts are relevant in terms of how we provide context for kids. We wanted to try to really push ourselves to move past thinking A to Z and much more in a thematic lens to really diving into looking at humanity looking at the world in sort of these thematic ways that allow us to connect dots and using history and literature as a way of sort of couching that work that we're doing is that i mean i feel like that's that's how we believe the department should look
1: yeah, that's wonderful. That's quite a conceptualization, and it sounds like really cool work. Um, I imagine that there's multiple different ways that people could attack that same idea uh, of wanting sort of a more integrated experience that doesn't silo different disciplines out. Um, why did Why did you and your team and and Raven Gap choose uh, a humanities department and humanities curriculum as opposed to uh, just working to integrate the separate departments?
2: I think because where what we believe to be true is the idea that, especially in our school visits there were schools that did humanities work and it was, there was an English side and there was a history side and it was sort of co-planned work. But I think what we began to realize is for students as well as adults, as long as there exists those high level separations, they continue to sort of stay in that mindset of covering history, you know, from here to here or reading this full text novel, because this is what we want to do. So what we, in, in some ways, right, I think it, there was an uncomfortable dissidence early on as you're making all of those transitions. But I think what we all begin to realize as we sort of embarked on the journey was that number one, it creates natural collaboration, right? If I live in my comfort zone of, so for me, my background is English. If I live in my comfort zone of being an English teacher, a writing teacher, then I can stay very comfortable that way. And vice versa, if I'm a history of my, all of my background is history, then I can live very comfortably in that space. And so what we wanted to do is really push people together and sort of stretch ourselves as well as sort of really stretching students. So I think for us, what that looked like was instead of having English and history is what we call the double block model. And so what that means is that, right, a single teacher has less students, but sees them twice in any given, you know, uh, day rotation for us, right? So I mean, that's that's sort of where we landed. And we, we landed there because we thought it would really actually create a truer sense of collaboration. And I actually, think that has sort of already is actualizing itself just in the couple of years that I've been in charge.
1: That's really cool. You mentioned the double block model and and just uh, alluded to your schedule. Could you break down for our listeners um, what you mean by that and how the schedule works?
2: Yeah, of course. So at our school, we have an A through G rotation, but on any given day, on average, only four classes meet because we do much longer classes. We go 75 minute periods with some different blocks for tutorials and chapels and convocations. So what we looked at for us was instead of having one English teacher and one history teacher, we have one single teacher who then teaches both, technically, right, the English and history sides of the work. And so what that means is that teacher for instance we had a sophomore humanities teacher and all of his teaching responsibility is sophomore humanities which means he actually only teaches approximately 30 25 to 30 students that is his whole teaching load but he sees these students twice during that seven period rotation, and so for us, what that 's also led to that 's been a sort of an exciting development is right there 's a lot more intentionality that you can put into work when you have students, you know whether it 's workshopping ideas or building you know unique project based learning exercises like there's a lot more freedom when you 're not also having to think about grading you know fifty five sixty you know some sometimes some faculty here have almost seventy students they're responsible for, so we felt like it has really worked itself out. In that mechanism as well. And then how it works for us departmentally is that we have an entire team that then teaches that specific area of humanities. So for us, we have a ninth grade team, a 10th grade team, and then we have an 11th grade team. And the one area for us that we have not dove too deep into as we're sort of developing it early on is right because we teach a number of AP courses. And so those have sort of lived in isolation, while we're still sort of developing philosophically what we're going to do with all of that.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So, you, so you've conceptualized it or at least implemented it where you still have the same amount of time that you would dedicate to English and history. So kind of believing that it still takes the, amount of, the same amount of time to cover both topics, but you put them together in the same block so that you could integrate them.
2: Yes, that's, I mean, I think that's a great simple way of explaining it, which is, you know, obviously <laughs> it's become complicated at times, but yeah, that's the end goal is that we look at planning in terms of that idea that there is, you know, you have half the time to do this and half the time to do that. But the pre- I think the neat thing is that as we've gone deeper into this planning process, we have really even removed that idea of thinking like half and half. We do a lot of backwards planning in our humanities department, so we're really spending a lot of time thinking in terms of what is the end thing we want students to be able to either demonstrate, show, you know, acknowledge, do, and so then we plan backwards from there. And what's been neat to me in that experience is that it sort of removed us from thinking we have to make sure we cover English this way or history that way. We sort of have looked at experiences and then sort of diving into how does how does our content then connect, connect to those experiences we want students to be a part of.
1: So you mentioned earlier um, that you, it sounded like you said you started with ninth grade uh, creating the humanities curriculum and then moved up. Uh, That's, it seems like a pretty, uh, you know, considerable task to create an integrated curriculum like that. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done to create that curriculum and how you've structured that process?
2: Yeah, certainly it. Yes, I would agree. It has been quite the undertaking because I think it's, you know, there's multiple facets of it. Like, For instance, there's the straight planning of curriculum, right? And so if you're going to truly plan a curriculum, one of the first things I did when I took over was we sat, I sat down with our various teams and we did a lot of dreaming. Like if you could create this course with no parameters, with no bounds, with no, you know, worries about what covering X to X, what would it look like? And so we did a lot of that. That was sort of when I took over One of my big first phases was to try to get out all of that stuff, because I think one of the challenges when you're doing sort of integrated work, and I think it moves beyond humanities, anytime you're looking to integrate, and I think that your school is not, you know, fully immersed in PBL, right? You're not living on the West Coast, having all these unique ways with which school is being designed, that there's an element to doing that work that's an education for adults as much as it is for the students. So I think we spent a lot of time early in that process and then coming out of that was at least, I mean, monthly, bi-monthly or bi-monthly meetings. And then there was a, I know for both my ninth, 10th, and all three teams, We also took time and got off campus and we would spend full days, half days, sort of really trying to build the curriculum. And you know, it was a grueling process because you're building curriculum and you're talking about the history that has to be covered. And then for us, like any school, you have those sort of benchmark moments. We have a couple of big research projects that students do. And so how does that fit into a humanities based design? So we spent a lot of time doing that. And then, I mean, then once we, and then there's the implementation process. I think that has been an interesting element year of unrolling 10th and 11th grade in one year that we spend time weekly i do weekly or bi-weekly with my teams and sitting down and talking about where are we at where are we going what are the next big things here's sort of the the map that we put together to get to these endpoints. so to me it's a, there's a lot of administrative work that goes into dreaming and then planning and then executing. I think, right. I think those are the three big steps for us. And I think we're still in the midst of both the end of planning to the beginning of execution.
1: Yeah. Wow. That sounds like a considerable, a considerable undertaking. Um, What are some of the greatest challenges that your team has faced um, in doing this work and how did you tackle them?
2: The one that I think would stick out to anyone listening would be the reality of when you have people that are really, really grounded in what they do well, right? Whether that is the English side or the history side, it's the element of trying to sort of move beyond that level of understanding to begin to think about what could school look like? What could this class look like if we removed those bounds, right? And I think there's fun and magic to that, but then when you're trying to get down to the nitty-gritty, there's conversation around, well, what if we don't cover this period in history, or what if we don't get to this specific writing concept? And so, I think our biggest challenge was really trying to move our minds beyond that place. I think I'm really lucky because I think primarily the teams that I put together are very ambitious about that. I think they were willing to sort of jump in and dive into sort of building these really cool experiences for students and then figuring out how the rest of it fits into that conceptual map. I think the other thing we've really worked through the first two years and why I think collaboration is such a big part of doing double block humanities for us is having conversations where we're willing as adults to be vulnerable, what we're not great at. You know, I think that that has been a unique element for us because, for instance, I I mean, I have a teacher at my school who's very versed in doing the work of history. And I think it took a couple of years for that teacher to really start to get comfortable with, we're going to teach this basic research writing skill. Can I have some resources? Is there some help? And so I think there was there's that element that has been really unique of trying to sort of break down the walls of even how we individually think about school. And so I think that that's one of the ways we've attacked it. And the other thing for us is thinking about ways with which you can mechanize some work that can be done because it simplifies. So for example, one of the things we realized is that we really want to have a sound foundation grammatically for students but we also don't want it to look four or five different ways as they move through so like we used we use our Khan Academy as a resource and I think what that has allowed for a lot of our, our students is that it's self-paced and so they can sort of build but what it allows I think for our adults especially those that were struggling with that element is there's this this online tool that sort of takes a lot of the the fear and anxiety over not being able to answer the right question. And then the same thing, flipping, we use stuff like common lit oftentimes in some of our history moments because it has this great, it's a great website. It's a great resource. It has some guiding questions. And so it's a way of sort of locking in certain elements so that everybody feels a little bit more comfortable. So does that, I think that's the things that we have found to be the biggest. And then I think the other thing is just, really trying to think through how best to utilize double blocks, right? Because there are occasions where our teachers will see students twice in one day, right? So you see the same group of students at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, and what is the best way to go through? And once again, I think that's been a lot of sitting down in a room together. And when you have three different groups of teachers that are all doing the double block, we just start to share what are the practices, You know, what are best practice that you're seeing? How does that seem to be working in your space? And so I think that to me, like, it's a lot of that element for us. It's a lot about collaboration, teamwork, and diving into sort of even when we're uncomfortable. And that's the other thing, right? There have been difficult conversations that I think you need to have and be comfortable having that I'm worried if we don't read all these full texts or I'm worried if we don't give this sound, you know chronological movement from time period to time period. And you have to talk those things through to figure out where is, where is the space where everyone is comfortable and continue to move us forward.
1: I love how you talked about using Khan Academy to basically create like a structure for people to feel more comfortable uh, and knowing you know, what, uh, how to teach a topic that maybe they had never taught before. That's pretty neat. Uh, And it sounds. Yeah.
2: And I think it also, what it allows for too, is as we sort of built it out was if I'm a teacher who's, you know, whether I'm diving into something for the first time, because that's the thing I think we, we talked a lot about as a staff is just because you have taught history, right? Anybody who has a degree in history or a degree in English has learned the other part, right? Like I have a degree, my, my undergrad degree was in you know, English literature, but I have background because I took an American literature class in American history and I took a Britley class, so I British uh, and it's the idea that we're already sort of living in a humanities space, but if you know that you know the students are working on X exercise with regards to this simple grammatical concept, then I can either choose to like plant myself there and then I can invest a little bit of time to really feel like I'm comfortable, but it's nice because, yes, it really, I think, set a foundation for faculty where it alleviated some of the anxiety that I think anybody feels when they don't feel like they're this, you know, 100% high-level expert in an idea.
1: So what what role did professional development play in this work? I mean, obviously, there's some internal professional development you talked about. It sounds like you have a pretty highly collaborative team. Um, But what what external professional development? um, I mean, would you recommend or, or did you explore in doing this work?
2: Sure. It's really funny because we actually were talking about this in our most recent staff meeting. I think it's our next big step is to try to look at, especially when we onboard new faculty, I will say two things that we've really valued. One has been hiring in terms of, not that that's a professional development element, but for (laughs) us, it's been a big deal because, because the idea is that If you know this is what we value as an institution then we want to try as often as possible to make sure we recently hired just this year a teacher coming out of graduate school who had their background in history but was one credit short of an English minor so right like we start to value those things a little bit more than I think you would as you look normally at a blank resume from someone because we know who we're trying to be and what we're trying to accomplish but I think we've all talked about where are the professional development moments whether it's we send faculty or provide opportunities I think what I would like to do is to pers- begin to look at and provide opportunities for if you want a little bit more of a sound foundation in this way of writing, or this grammatical piece. I think there's that element. I think the one thing that helped a lot of our faculty, a unique version of professional development, was when we knew we were going to undertake this project. We spent a lot of time visiting other schools, engaging with other faculty. There's a school right up the road from us who had done humanities work for roughly eight to ten years. We took at least three trips up there to just sit down with their faculty and talk about What is the best of this? What is the hardest part of this? You know, as you're designing and building, what should we be considering? And I think that was a really helpful step because we not only visited those schools, but we visited schools that were in the Northeast that were doing this work, because I think it allowed us to really get a picture for what we wanted to do. But I think for us, it is a big next step is to figure out what are the right professional development opportunities for faculty. And then the other thing we've utilized is we have utilized in our faculty meetings, having some people who are really skilled at a certain aspect of whether it's teaching history or teaching literature to be able to talk for faculty members because I think that that's just another good way to look at and as I continue to think and develop it's the thing I want to utilize more is let's all look at a piece of writing and what do we value and why because I think that will help us as we build towards having this true humanities base that is from 9th to 12th grade.
1: Great. When you're thinking about instructional approaches, uh, how does instruction need to change or shift uh, when you're moving to integrated model, especially in a block schedule like you've talked about? And what do people need to be thinking about uh, in terms of developing themselves and growing in, in terms of instructional approach?
2: Well, I think, you know, for Raymond Gap, I think the unique thing has been, number one, when we switched schedules, everyone had to adjust, right? Because we went to these much longer periods, 75-minute blocks of time. So we spent some time talking about what is the best way to use a 75-minute block. So there's that core adjustment that's to be made. I think outside of that, the biggest instructional adjustments that our faculty made was the idea of really removing yourself from – Being siloed to use that term again, but I mean the idea is that like removing yourself outside of that circumstance and being willing to connect with each other. So things that we've instituted department wide we do self we do sort of reflective observations, right? So it is required of everybody in the humanities department. They have to watch somebody on their team who is teaching the whatever unit they're currently on. And then there's a second observation that they have to do, is which is to do observe someone else in the humanities department. And we do that three times throughout the year, one for every trimester. So in the end, they will have observed six different faculty members. Some of them, there's overlap because teams are smaller, but they will have observed a number of other, and then they have to sort of write a reflective piece because I think that's a big step for us is to continue to see other people in our department doing really cool things. And so I think that's a really big step for us as we sort of move away for how do you integrate this piece. And then I think the other piece has been really trying to lean into the area where we're most uncomfortable. And meaning that, for instance, if I'm somebody who is a little more comfortable in the uh, spontaneous moments of education, right? I wanna take a moment that all of a sudden has popped up. I think there's an adjustment that has to be made because in order for an entire team to be moving a direction, that everybody has to sort of be moving that same direction. And I think the same is true for the other. I think if you're somebody who's really detail oriented and you know what class two is gonna look like in class three and class four, I think there's that element of having to be willing to be able to push a little bit and to to lean into that space of being flexible and adaptable, right? Being agile. And so I think that has been an interesting way of our faculty learning how to work together and integrate. And I think what's unique about it is that it really, like any good new project, it stretches, it's uncomfortable at times, but I think what it has done and I've seen in a number of our teams has sort of drawn us closer because I think you begin to, to see the best and worst of you know, you as an educator, right? And you get to grow and develop all of those parts at the same time. So I think that's, to me, the biggest structure, instructional approaches we've had to take were around those ideas.
1: Wonderful. So let's suppose that a colleague from another school comes up to you and says they want to create a humanities department um, in, a similar, you know, in a similar way. What are the top three things that you would tell them in terms of advice?
2: I would say the first one has to be research. I think you have to dive into understanding and looking at What schools do humanities work? Why do they do it? And how do they make it practically work? Because I think before you can decide that this is something you think you want to do for your school, I think you have to begin to understand because it's a huge leap. I mean, that is the big thing that I think looking back on it now that I see and we're still you know, deep in. I think we're still another three or four years from really feeling like we've got a grasp on doing this humanities work because if you don't take that time and you just think it's something you're going to implement like a, a new assessment tool or a new piece of technology, I think it is doomed to fail because I think there's so much education of faculty, so much education of students, because I think both of those have to work hand in hand to understand what you're doing. So to me, I would say the number one step has to be research. And the second step, which is sort of similar, but I think I want to separate a little, would be to do some data collection, right? Because I think once again, where I feel really privileged at Raven Gap is we had a group of faculty that were ready to embark on this journey. I think if you have if you have sort of very traditional educators who see education in a very traditional sense, I think once again the same thing is going to happen. I think it 's sort of one of those that 's bound for failure, or you 're going to turn over all of those people because I think you have to know who you're working with and once again i think that moves up administratively even like do you have that support from the administration element because you have to educate faculty and students and parents at times around what are we doing and while it doesn't sound or look like we remember you know quote unquote school to look like we're actually developing sort of that next level skills that will translate so much better for them no matter where they're at and then the third one for me is is planning i think that you have to be willing to know that it's going to be a five to six year process. If you really want to take your English and history departments, and for us, we're not even exploring our world religions department and sort of absorbing that into our humanities model. If you know, that's what you want, it's just going to take tremendous planning. It, you know, I think for my sophomore team, it was a two year process before we even tried to implement for the, uh, you know, for our juniors, it was two years. For our freshmen, it was a little bit more like three. So I think the idea is that, You've got to be willing and, and to invest long term in really sort of planning. And like a great example is as we were building our sophomore curriculum about a year and a half ago, one of the things we really landed on was we wanted this really cool, unique experience out of a... Sort of modern world studies course and we all of a sudden thought about using something like the world peace game from john hunter and so you know that was planning you know we sent multiple faculty members to become facilitators we sent them like thinking about you know we want to do this with sophomores in high school does that even translate and so then there's the idea that them going and coming back and collecting all that data and right all of that is for the moment that we're currently in the middle of now because we're enrolling it for the first time but if we were just decided we wanted to do humanities work, then you don't really have all that time to be planning and thinking ahead and, and dreaming and doing that work. So those to me, I would research, I'd be collecting a lot of data from my stakeholders, from the people that I'll be working with, even from students sometimes. And then the third one would be that idea of making sure you're ready to plan long term.
1: That's great advice. You mentioned that you've so far, you have ninth, 10th and 11th uh, humanities. And first of all I think it's amazing that you spent that much time planning I mean you're talking about like for ninth through 12th you know essentially saying that it could take like a decade to implement uh, which sounds you know reasonable actually Uh, but I was curious you know I started thinking about AP classes Uh, how does how does the humanities uh, the development of the humanities curriculum in the humanities department how does that intersect with other types of opportunities like AP courses that students want to take how do you handle that
2: Sure, good question. I think we're sort of talking through all of those dilemmas that exist there right now for us as an institution. Some of the solutions are simple, um, meaning that, for instance, our American, our APUS course is basically collaboratively taught with our AP language course. So, right, so they're not getting a true double block, one teacher handling both ends of the AP expertise, but they are getting a true common experience where there is a lot of conversation. We did a big, our first big unit assessment for trimester one was that students had to sort of collaborate between the spaces of APUS and AP Lang to promote and create a pitch for a monument, a new monument to be built based on all of their first trimester readings. And they did create a prototype. And that prototype will use the scrum model in order to really sort of facilitate that sort of tech industry idea of, you know, constant evolution and iteration. And then they pitched the idea in front of a group of paneled faculties. And the panel faculty chose which monument they thought was the best. And then we tied that into a small research paper because that was sort of how we wanted to have them diving into the history from the APUS side. So in that world, we sort of have landed on collaboration, right? Like really trying to create those spaces where we're thinking about school together. And then I think where our dream is, we would like to end up in a world where potentially our junior and seniors years are a lot of humanities electives with having to have X number of boxes checked off because then you could really dive into number one, Areas of expertise for your faculty and then two, giving a lot more in student empowerment and choice instead of having to think about just handling, you know, U.S. history from point A to point Z. Now you could specifically land on, you know, the civil rights era or you could specifically land on the Cold War. And so like we're really talking about what would it look like to have an 11th and 12th grade model. Because the uniqueness there would be that an AP would just become a part of those elective choices, and so students could be electing into some of that with choice. So I think those are the two areas I think we're toying with is how do we create more collaboration, and then the second becoming how do we look at sort of what that 11th and 12th grade looks like so that it has a true humanities-like feel, especially in a college preparatory environment.
1: That's wonderful. This has been great and uh, really informative. Um, so we close on the podcast by asking all our guests three questions. Um, what should people, what should people be reading? What should people be listening to and how can people connect with you?
2: Sure. So I think for me, a couple of books that are sticking out to me currently, and one of them is an older book, uh, which is uh, Claude Steele's Whispering Vivaldi. Cause I, I really find the idea of studying stereotype in the classroom one that is fascinating and we just had a group of faculty that came back from the people of color conference and one of the our faculty members came back and there's there's now another that one of their keynote speakers was doing sort of a deep dive on the research for how especially around health and wellness and how that's impacted by stereotype and bias, which, of course, is sort of one of the core elements of Whispering Reality. So I sort of have circled back to that. And I think it's a great read for any faculty members. You're trying to understand not only the element of stereotype and bias, but the fact that how much of it lives in our unconscious mind. So I think that's a big one that I've been reading and went back and read. It's something that I read. And then the second one for me was a book our head of school actually offered up last spring. It was a book called The Privileged Poor by Anthony Abraham Jack. And I think, especially as independent schools are driving more and more towards trying to be these really diverse and inclusive environments, I think the book is enlightening in terms of realizing what that means for children, what that means for students, right? If we have financial aid policies and how do all of those impact as we try to create these really diverse and inclusive environments that cross over. You know, race and gender and socioeconomic status. I think if we walk into that with a without really having some intentionality, that in the end, what we think is really something that is novel, practical, and really innovative can actually end up hurting students in the long run. So, those for me are the two books I'm reading. I think I've been listening to. One of the things I listen to is I really liked White Lies, which is that is an NPR podcast that's sort of diving into the The Reverend that was killed in Selma, and I think why I'm so fascinated by it is that idea for how, depending on my perspective on history, depending on my perspective on reality, like I can really have a nuanced conversation about what I may think and believe based on what actually happened, which I think feels very relevant in today's 24-7 news cycle of information and trying to decipher, you know, truth from fiction, from bias, from opinion. So those, I think that's and so that's what I've been listening to recently. And then yeah, contact me, I'm easy. Uh, you can either obviously add a LinkedIn or you can contact me via email and my email address is just S-N-O-W-A-C-K and that's at Rabungap.org, which is R-A-B-U-N-G-A-P.org. And so I will gladly reply. I'm pretty quick with an email as I think most of us need to be in this digital age. So wonderful! My and, I'll,
1: put, uh, I'll put links to those resources and to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can have access to those. Well, Steve, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been great and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
2: Well, Michael, thanks for asking me to come on. It's been fun to really talk through these ideas that I've been just like in the midst and deep, you know, thinking about (laughs) in the moment. It's been fun to sort of reflect back on the journey as I've been on the phone. So thanks so much.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We hope that today's conversation helped you grow as an independent school leader. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Episodes of this podcast are released bi-weekly. You can follow and engage with Matt McGee and Michael Lemusio on LinkedIn.